Welcome everyone to the Ask an Operator podcast, where we have conversations with some of the brightest business minds to understand the strategies and tactics that they use to build their businesses. And here on the podcast, we are heavy on value and light on fluff. So without further ado, let's get right into this episode. We have a very special guest today, Mr. Brendan Burns. And for those of you who don't know Mr. Brendan Burns, he is a high performance strategist CEO and hosts a top 100 Apple podcast, former Wall Street executive turned entrepreneur who over the last decade has advised Fortune 100 companies, investment banks, law firms, professional sports teams, billionaires, uh, and you name it. And now Brendan runs Burns International Inc., which is a professional coaching and consulting firm that caters to online entrepreneurs and coaches who want to build or scale their own coaching practice. And he also hosts the Brendan Burns Show, who has had esteemed guests like actor Matthew McConaughey, author Jack Canfield, and entrepreneurs like Jesse Itzler. I've known him for the better part of five years and couldn't be happier to chat with him today. So without further ado, Brendan Burns, welcome to the show. Nicholas, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, yeah. Really excited to dive straight into it today. So Let's just unpack something for a second here, man. You were a Wall Street executive, which for many is a dream career that they work their entire lives to achieve. And you decided to give that up and dive into to entrepreneurship. Tell me a little bit about why that happened and, and what led you to making that switch. Yeah, when I was working in investment banking, I got a lot of value out of that experience, but I knew it was a means to an end of public markets investing. Most investment bankers who start their career in banking young wind up moving to hedge funds or private equity. And so I did a lot of research on the difference between the two and felt like my personal style and how I like to think about investing was very much public markets hedge funds. So after working in banking for about a year, made the switch, joined a startup hedge fund. And I think the type of hedge fund I joined played a big role in where I am today. Because had I joined a large sort of bureaucratic investment bank style hedge fund, right, I probably or maybe would have stayed there or not had the entrepreneurial experience that I had working at Steamboat Capital. Because I came in and it was literally the founder and me. And he gave me, I remember within my first week or two, he's putting me on calls with CFOs of public companies. And he would sit in the background. He's like, okay, go, you know, ask him questions. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, but it was kind of like growing up when I got my learner's permit to drive, my dad gave me his 1982 Corvette. And he said, Hey, you're driving on the highway out to West Hampton in the winter to go check on his dad's summer house. And it's like real trial by fire. So I learned a lot about investing. I learned a lot about business operate like being a business operator and i really enjoyed all aspects of it so after three years i felt like hey this is now time for me to start my own hedge fund but i had some um kind of personal developments in terms of relationships and family and mindset i had been to a tony robbins event and i was just getting increasingly passionate about personal development and so i thought hey why don't i give this a shot um you know just to see if i can monetize this not that money was the only concern but i did see Tony Robbins was worth half a billion dollars and a lot of people were very lucrative and it felt a little bit more aligned with kind of my passions professionally. So mm -hmm. I stepped into this arena. Um, I will say though, once I really got my coaching business and consulting company dialed in, I've 
really leaned back to uh, public markets investing for myself personally. And I've had people now approach me to invest with me. So it is going to be my next business. I'm just making sure not to do too many businesses at the same time, as I'm sure you've seen things go wrong there. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for the for the insight there. So what kind of principles did you take with you from the hedge fund world that maybe at first you didn't think were going to be applicable to the business you ultimately ended up building, but uh, now are? Well, if you read zero to one or any business books that kind of discuss the difference between product and sales, I had read so much kind of counterintuitively around the importance of marketing and sales. And so most people think the product is so important. And if you kind of study and you look at Nikola Tesla versus Edison, or you look at a lot of these startups and companies that thrive, the marketing and sales side is so important, if not you know, arguably more important than product, at least from kind of short-term revenue and profitability perspectives. So I was so far on the marketing and sales side, which did allow me to add value to Steamboat because I pushed heavily for us to raise capital and take certain investors' money, which then helped us grow rapidly to multiple hundred million dollars. But the founder was actually very studious and a great investor. And so our actual product was really strong. And I think I came in like so well read of like, you know, Stanford business case studies and Harvard business case studies and all these things where I was like, oh, product doesn't even matter at all, which is ridiculous. Obviously it matters. And the better it is, it can actually make sales and marketing easier. So I think one of the things I learned was delivering a good product over a long period of time, especially in the financial space can attract, you don't want to rely on it, but it can help you raise capital and certainly keep the capital that you have. So one of the things that I really learned from the founder was the integrity of fulfillment of what you're actually doing, because there is so much out there about growth hacking, marketing is the only thing that matters. And so kind of grounding me into sort of a middle ground on that was helpful. Yeah, it's funny how having a better product uh, in some ways does the sales and, and marketing for you in a, in a certain way. I, I won't go all the way to build it and they will come, but right. uh, more, more so in that direction maybe than, than past times. Yeah. So when your business was under a million dollars in revenue, you're just kind of getting traction. What were some of the main tactics and strategies that you were focused on at that point? Walk me through kind of the business plan and how you went about executing it uh, when you were under a million. And you're talking about my co coaching business? Correct. Yeah. Yep. So being under a million was kind of the result of not having a scalable offer combined with scalable marketing, combined with scalable team to help fulfill. Because in the coaching space, you know, I would say our offers are on the higher end, definitely not the highest. I've seen 50K, 100K plus offers in the space. But you know, some of our offers are four or five, multiple five figures. So, But even with that, we weren't at a million. And I think the reason why was we were heavily reliant on word of mouth and referrals and my team was very small and there wasn't really sort of any intentionality or plan around growth to the seven figure mark. So what I did was I had to kind of look at all the different types of things I was doing, relationship coaching, life coaching, business coaching, one-on-one -on -one clients, group clients, and just sort of streamline everything into one high ticket offer. Now we do have two offers, a high ticket front end and then back end ascension model, but everything pretty much that I do at this point short of once in a while, a very big public company CEO might, you know, their company might write me a big check, six figure check to work with them for high level stuff. And maybe I'll take between three and five of those people at any given time. 
But for 99% now, we have one front-end offer, one back-end offer, and all our marketing, all our sales, and everything is designed around that. So we have, and that offer is scalable. So we can just continue to put people in that. One of the problems with having sort of a mom and pop life coaching business, like I like to call it, was there was really, you know, you can only take so many clients and then you can add other coaches, but then you have kind of a bloated infrastructure. So we did pivot to a one-to-many model, sort of Mm -hmm. a hybrid where you get some one-on-one support, but there's a lot of group coaching and a lot of course content, a lot of these types of things. So scalable, high ticket offer that with a clear, clean niche. And then same thing, marketing, scalable marketing with, you know, you can turn a dial with ads, sales team, fulfillment team, and really kind of turning it into a business more than, you know, when I first met this guy who jumped in and was sort of helping me out, he's kind of my number two. If you go back three, four years, he, I told him about my business and he goes, Brandon, you don't have a, ho- you don't have a business, you have a hobby right now. And so <laughs> it was really turning it from this kind of like make 10K, 20K a month, which isn't bad money. I was making 20, 30K a month. I'm like, this is actually decent cash, very high margins, but definitely wasn't scalable to seven or multiple seven figures. Sure. So if, if you were to talk to an entrepreneur out there that is under a million dollars and kind of what you just alluded to, things need to be scalable. We're either adding people, we're adding marketing dollars or, or the like. So if you were to give them a few things to focus on to go from let's just say unorganized to set up for scale, what would be the few things that you would tell them to get in place from a a people or capital or infrastructure perspective? Yeah. I mean, I would start with the offer, like whatever you're selling, make sure that you're, it's set up for your marketing to scale so that you have something that you're selling that you can crank ads and you're going to attract a very specific type of person that can sign up for that product or service and not have to, you know, realize, okay, I turned all these ads on, I've built these funnels and this product is actually too broad. And the ads, like the return on ad spend, as you know, is also a function of if you have clarity around the niche, clarity around the offer, clarity around who you're specifically serving. So I would make sure that your offer is, can be marketed at scale. That's one. Two is make sure that your the fulfillment is also scalable and won't like your company won't break if like you know i remember when i was sort of a one-on-one coach and then a company came to me and said hey well you know if we brought you in to do one-on-one coaching we have a thousand employees like how would that work right mm-hmm. and so it was this huge opportunity but there was no infrastructure or scalability behind it where now you know we've considered even adding only a second offer, right? Because I believe that in the coaching space, you can scale each individual offer to call it a million dollars a month at least. But maybe a second offer would be some sort of B2B scalable offer where if I was having that conversation, I would say, hey, well, this is actually how we work with larger organizations and teams. You know, your top five performers get a small group on a weekly plus one or two with the CEO per month, something like that. So just making sure that if you look at your business and let's say you had a thousand people at your door holding their credit card up, ready to sign up, could you, could you handle that? Right. And yeah. what part of your business would that break? Would it break your sales team? Do you have the people to actually sign them up and button it up and press the payment and get them onboarded? Would it break the fulfillment side of things? Would it break your operational side of your business? Do you have the back end? Do you have legal accounting operations infrastructure there? So, it's really like 
as you grow, making sure that each aspect of your business is set up to handle that. So again, fulfillment, marketing, sales, operations, customer success, all of these things are set up with good foundations so that as you take on more and more clients, like this is something that we've been experiencing positively where we're setting record months every month, you know, like this month, last month, right? We're just 100K, 200K, pacing for three. So we're seeing everything grow and I'm not needing to work more and everything's kind of set up. I use Zapier for operations and bookkeeping. It's all, it's all there. And the fulfillment team's built out where I may need to add more people to the team, but I have a bench set up. I have the people identified. They would just, I know how to pay them, right? There's room for them on stand-up meetings, et cetera. So making sure that if everything worked out that your business wouldn't break. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So given where you're at right now with the business as a leader, what are some of the things that you're allocating your time to personally, right? Because you've now built the infrastructure and the systems to be scalable, but what happens when the business doesn't necessarily require more of Brendan's time? And the, the root of this question is we get asked this a lot in terms of, I've basically fired myself. What do I do? Crew, if you're enjoying this episode of the Ask an Operator podcast, it would mean the world to me if you left us a quick rating and a review. It really helps us reach more people and get valuable insight into more people's hands. So thanks a million. Let's get back to the show. So you got to d- decide what your goal is. Is your goal to build the business, take it up to the next level? Is it to maintain where it's at? Is it to remove yourself ultimately for an exit? So it really depends. Like for me, if I say we're doing kind of in the 200K a month range, 2250, I'm kind of happy with where it's at. Like we may take it up to 300K a month, but I'm not really looking to scale this offer to a million a month for separate reasons we can get into. But one of which is I do want to get back into the hedge fund space and, and do investing. And that model and that business is really interesting to me. It's something that I was kind of a number two app and never been a number one in. I think it'll help me grow a lot in the mindset. Like it's easy for me to run a couple hundred thousand bucks in an E-Trade account, you know, and be up like 40% or whatever this year or whatever. But what if I have like a hundred million bucks of all these other people's money? So I see that as a really interesting growth and mindset play. Yeah. But it, it just depends. Like I think it's either for me with the coaching business, it's, scale to some degree and then also maintenance because what i've seen is people hit certain numbers in their business and then exit themselves way too fast and then things break and then they have to rebuild it or make hires and all this so in terms of scaling the things that i'm working on are a lot of recruiting which comes down to a lot of networking too because sometimes the best recruits and the best people that you add to your team come from that personal network and spending time in good circles so recruiting is one. Um, getting an even better handle on marketing. So growing my podcast, my social media channels, short form content, organic content, LinkedIn, Coldy, all these things that have been working, continuing to refine and then look at other ways to market and do lead gen. Um, so making sure fulfillment's dialed in. I still run all the teams pretty much. Like I run the sales team. I run the fulfillment team. I'm running the business. Um, and to the last thing that I'm really focused on is leadership. So scaling people has been a little messy for me. There have been times where I've been too soft and there's been times where I've come down on people too hard. And so what I'm really in this process now of learning is how to be balanced, how to be reasonable, how to help people get better, understand 
what's going to help them get better, that people do respond to different styles of leadership and management. But at the end of the day, most people do generally respond well to praise and encouragement more than constantly being berated. So another thing, you know, come from Wall Street, that was kind of the model. So learning how to actually, it's like, well, why would I be nice to them if they're screwing everything up, right? Learning the counterintuitive nature to that and how to actually improve things based on a lot of what I've read from things like how to win friends and influence people and books like that. And then, yeah, I mean, also making sure I'm having fun. You know, I left Wall Street because it was a pretty poor quality of life, specifically investment banking more so than the hedge fund space. But also, you know, when you hit certain levels, it's important to celebrate. You know, like it's easy to just kind of check the box because there's always someone at every level. You know, when I was working with you and you were running my Facebook ads and I was making like 12 grand a month, I was, oh, that's amazing. I can quit my day job and that was fun. But then very quickly you start to get invited to things where everyone's making 20K and 50. I actually remember a few years ago when you mentioned to me, oh, you know, you should look at this lady. She's crushing it. She's making 100K a month. And I remember thinking that was so crazy. And now we're both there, right? And so it's, it's just, I heard 50 Cent on an interview and they asked him, hey, how much money did you get paid on this deal? And he was like, yeah, about 80. And they were like, $80 million? That's crazy. Like, why aren't you happier about this? And he said, look, you know, the circles I'm in, it's actually not a lot of money for some of these people. So what I have to remind myself of is gratitude, celebrating, enjoying these things, and not just, okay, I check the box. Now we got to go to 400, 500 a month, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's easy to skip over the wins and just uh, grow at all costs, you know, and not really reflect. So that's really cool to hear. One thing I want to go a little bit deeper into, I know that you are a master marketer when it comes to building communities, uh, cold outreach, along with your podcast. I want to go a little bit deeper into that as far as what are you using right now to scale the firm? And if you could just provide a little bit of color there and some tactics and strategies that people could be using right now that they might be sleeping on. I think some of the things that we do really well which is also kind of part of how we help coaches and consultants is we're not a traditional do it on Facebook ads, which is hilarious because when we worked together, I got torched so hard on the Facebook ad compliance. And for so long, I waited to get back into the Facebook ad game. But this year, I don't know if you know this, but I've had months where I spent 10, 20 plus K, 30 K, you know, I've now spent almost, you know, 40 K on Facebook ads just as a test with this offer. And first of all, I want to be fair to Facebook and say, I think their compliance has gotten a lot more reasonable. You know, we had no issues, so that's good. I think they've kind of learned a little bit from being maybe overly challenging for maybe, some maybe TikTok was breathing down their neck. Exactly. So thank you, TikTok for coming in the space and alleviating some Facebook ad woes. But I think, you know, one thing that's super interesting is when I started making hundred K a month, in my business, I was doing it without ad spend and I was in masterminds and three out of every four mastermind calls were on Facebook ads. And I just thought it was so cool how high margin my business was. So I'm a huge fan of um, some of the marketing tactics that we specifically use to grow our business because number one, they actually target people much better than Facebook ads in my opinion. And number two, they either have no or very, very little spend associated with them. So. I think right now our top three 
channels for clients in order is number one, LinkedIn organic, number two, Google ads, like Google search ads, and then number three, cold email. And, and referrals might be above email right now because we do get a lot of referrals. But, you know, LinkedIn is almost no ad spend. It's basically just sales navigator, which is like 80 bucks a month. And then if you want to use a software tool for like 50 to 100, something more per month. And then cold email, we do pay per lead. We have some agencies that we work with on that. But I'm envisioning bringing that in-house and other than like paying for an email server domain and then paying for the leads, which we actually don't even need to because with our LinkedIn strategies, we actually get access to plenty of emails every month through there. So referrals, cold email and LinkedIn could arguably be almost zero spend. And then the Google that we do, we're actually really good at it, not because I'm any special, but more because I think being resourceful and finding some good ad managers and being able to test it and kind of understand Google search, because again, so many people understand Facebook ads. Very few people are really good at YouTube and Google and display and these things. So it's pretty cool that we're pushing above 200K a month with like 10, 12,000 in ad spend, uh, which I love. But I also do see a path where Facebook ads would make sense um, because part of it too, one of the things I've been learning and growing in is how to run a sales team effectively and taking ownership for like, how to not freak out and be a good leader and identify talent and know who to hire and know when to cut them. And so obviously part of ROAS comes down to, do you have the right sales guys? So I think that's played a role in Facebook not getting fully dialed for us yet. But I think it's also pretty cool because we've been able to leverage these organic platforms or very low cost platforms that have been able to drive significant revenue and then recurring revenue and upsell on these clients where LTV is tremendous. Like the ROAS on even Google might be three, four, five X or higher, which I think is pretty high for Google search where cost per leads can be very high. Yeah, absolutely. But then if you look at LTV on upgrades, it's even better. So let's, let's talk about LTV for a moment. A lot of people, at least in the direct response, uh, advertising community, even e-commerce community, many focus on really trying to get that first purchase as profitable as possible. Can you talk a little bit to why LTV and focusing on that might be more important than that initial uh, ROAS there in the first month? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that attracts me to starting a hedge fund as my next business is because of the LTV in that space. Not that you can't have significant DPL dollar per lead and LTV long-term value in the coaching and consulting business, but when you're working with B2C, over B2B and you're working with people who may be brand new to coaching, which we're really getting away from. We're focusing now on either high performers ready to start their coaching business, but even still much more focused on existing coaches already making money who want to scale. Because if someone has never made a sale in their life of anything, right? They work at Google as a product manager and they want to become a life coach. There's so many hurdles. And that's where even from a marketing perspective, I think this is an interesting point. Are you attracting the right type of client that makes it easier for you as a business owner to enhance the LTV. So does your offer and your marketing align in a way to drive higher LTV? And if not, it's something to consider because some of these like low or medium ticket offers with low demographics or people that aren't realistically going to get significant financial return or success in say a 90 day program. That's why our shortest program is five months. Because I also know that the longer I can work with someone, 
you know, occasionally I get a guy who's like, oh, I can only do half that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the reason why we do kind of that longer approach with our traditional coaching, grow your coaching business client is because I know that if I can spend more time with them, I can affect bigger change and get better results. And then it makes it easier. So I think one of the things about LTV is making sure your offer and fulfillment and marketing is dialed to attract people where LTV is going to be good for you. And then even going higher up, zooming out to your business, right? Because for me, if you look at a hedge fund, like assuming you perform and put up the returns, client success is very low touch. You write a quarterly letter to all your investors. You make sure your accountants are sending the stuff out. But if everything's going according to plan, your investors are with you for many, many years. And I do try to do the same thing with coaching clients. And we do have clients that work with us for years, but it's not always the case. Sure. Sure. No, that makes that makes complete sense. I want to change gears a little bit. You are one of the people uh, in my network that has really built around personal brand. And you've kind of done this since the beginning and it's always been a focus for you. So I want to ask, do you think it's critical for every business to have kind of a face and a, a personal brand to build around? And if you could start over, would you build it around your name? And uh, yeah, just really curious to hear what what you think on that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the personal brand because I think it has allowed us to grow our business significantly with limited ad spend. I don't think... I know for a fact my LinkedIn process would not work nearly as well if I didn't have a big picture of me with you know, billionaires and McConaughey and all these people right at the top. Because when you do organic marketing, credibility is important, right? I think on some level when you run ads, there's inherent credibility because you've figured out how to run ads and it says sponsored and you're spending money and people think, oh, okay, there's some credibility here versus organically kind of forces you to have some level of credibility and trust and relationship. And the other thing that I've seen too is people who don't really have big organic followings or strong personal brands, what happens is they just have to spend more and more in ads and their ads are typically less profitable. So for me, we're putting out podcast short form clips every day during the week on YouTube shorts and TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And so when someone sees one of my ads, let's say they search on Google, because I think those are the only ads we're running right now, but still Google display. We are running YouTube ads actually retargeting, remarketing. But so some people will see that and it brings another level of credibility that if I didn't have a personal brand wouldn't exist. Another good example is one of my appointment setters had a great call today with a guy that we're probably going to sign up. And his journey with us was, actually adds into the personal brand and then back to us. So it can go in either direction. It can go personal brand first, recognition there, then see an ad, which will convert higher because there's that recognition. But other times people find me through ads first. And then I have like this, you know, hundred email keep drip sequence that probably started building when I knew you back in the day. And so every time I do a great podcast or I have an interesting insight, if I take an email broadcast instead of sending it to my list just one time, I'll then put it in my nurture sequence. So if someone clicks on my ad and they don't sign up with us or book a call, they'll obviously get a number of emails to try to push them into our sales team. However, we don't just send them a million emails all about book a call, book a call. Eventually, it goes into a nice long nurture sequence where I'm just adding a ton of value over a span of many emails. And so this guy, I actually was in my Instagram today and realized who it was because 
he had sent me a DM on Instagram a few weeks ago. Hey, Brandon, how do I learn more about your coaching services? Right. And then I just sent him a link to one of my appointment setters. So I'm a huge fan of personal brand. I went really hard on it kind of back in 2017, 18, 19, and then got really into kind of organic marketing and just kind of client development and leaned out of social media, which I'm not going to say is a mistake, but I think I would have done even better had I stuck with the personal brand. Um, and I think it's, you know, also I'll say too, it can be a little frustrating because it the performance can be inconsistent and it, you'll always see people who have more likes than you. So it is, there is a little bit of a kind of just sticking with it. But I think long-term, it's the best thing you can do for your business. One of the best things, at least from a marketing perspective. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And you've been, how many episodes of your podcast have you done? 160, I think. And did the majority of your traction come, let's just say, in the first third of that or in the second third of that? Of the episodes? Yeah. Well, I'll say this. I think my success is much more driven by the uh, skills I developed as a business owner and operator more so than having the brand. Like the brand was kind of always there. And then when I learned how to create a scalable high ticket offer, I got the right team surrounding me. I was getting very high level business coaching and consulting from people doing multiple millions of dollars per month. And I learned how to close really well and then learned how to build teams and like that's what allowed me to be successful. And then within that context, the question was, well, how do we just from a marketing perspective, because there were multiple things that needed to be done correctly there, but from a marketing perspective, how do we get leads? And so one of the things that allowed, okay, once I rolled up my sleeves, I was like, okay, we've got a real business. We got a real team. Let's freaking make money and make this happen. The marketing was really easy because I had the personal brand like ready to go. And it was almost like, you know, people who want to be in a relationship or get married. And there's that quote, it's better to be prepared for an opportunity and not have one than have an opportunity and not be prepared. I think it was Les Brown. And so I was ready for the opportunity and I was prepared because I had the brand kind of on the shelf. I wasn't doing a lot with it, but it was all there and the podcast was all ready to go. And then once we started kind of pushing it out more, I had all these podcasts that I could start to now. I had, oh, Alex Trebek's wife, Jean Trebek, came on the show. Let's put that out. Beaver Fleming, pro skateboarder, national guy. Push that out. Laird Hamilton, invented jet ski, tow and surfing. Matthew, like, okay, so now I had all these things, but now I kind of had the hunger and desire and the team and the playbook to leverage these assets and they were all ready to go. So, there were seasons where nobody really listened to my podcast and I had no idea what the downloads were, but they were probably bad, like 50 downloads, a hundred, you know, whatever it was. And I just didn't even look and I just kept, and this is a thing too, maybe worth sharing. I was very consistent. Like even when COVID hit, even when I really didn't want to put an episode out, I still just kind of cranked up. Even if they were short, I still got episodes out. And then now more and more, my team gets on these sales calls. Oh, and also one other thing is as this offer started to really gain traction, I started making more content in alignment with build a coaching business. And then I just get the, I mean, they're the best calls when you get, jump on sales call. Oh, how'd you find us? Or how'd you find Brendan? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a listener, podcast listener. Yeah. That's yeah, like love, saying, love you that. know, I'm, you don't, yeah, you don't even need to sell me. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. What would you say was the single best decision you've made in business to date? If, if you were, if you're able to distill it down into a single, single one. 
in my coaching business or just my career generally? We'll say your career in general. Best decision I've ever made? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. That's a really good question. I think early on, if you go back almost 10 years to 2016, so call it seven years ago, I went to a Tony Robbins conference and you know, I, I don't know why people, I think any person when you get to a certain level is going to attract pros and cons, but I just think if you just look at his content, it added so much value to my life. And one of the things that Tony talked a lot about was just never giving up this massive action, massive energy. And you see this a lot now from other people who've entered the space, like Adros Killian and David Goggins and Alex Hermosi. They're all now saying what Tony's, I heard him say almost 10 years ago, which is persistence. Don't give up. You're an idiot if you complain that it's hard, like it's supposed to be hard. You know, I heard this guy, Wes Watson. I, I think he's out here in San Diego. I've been following him a little bit. My friend helped build his business out. And he, I mean, he's got some great quotes, but uh, I think it was him saying, you know, it's either going to, it's either going to be hard and you're going to fail and that's going to suck, or you're going to crush it. And that's going to be hard because you're going to have refunds and problems and clients and you know, right. So just pick your hard. And so I think going through this process, the best decision I ever made was I'm just not going to give up. Like, I'm just going to keep going. And I think, you know, when people hear about my numbers or whatever, I don't think it's so much like I do know I have natural talent, which is what made me want to coach people more because I think I was born with that on some level. But the success in business to me requires so much more than the ability to provide a good product like we've been talking about. So I think I just committed to the process and I committed and went into it knowing there were going to be a lot of challenges. For me specifically, because I don't think there's one entrepreneur in my family. Like everyone was a lawyer. You can see yeah. my law degree back there. Like nobody yeah. built companies or businesses or teams. So this is all new for me. And I had to just kind of not give up and keep going. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Yeah. I think it's it's also quite impressive. A, a humble brag, Mr. JD MBA uh, over there. Uh, incredible backstory there, man. Um few rapid fire questions for you to kind of wrap up here. What does leadership mean to you? Well, it's funny because leadership was always something that I never really knew about and didn't even think, oh, this is a real thing because I never needed to be a leader in any way. To me, leadership is understanding that there that I have goals, the company has goals, and the people on my team have goals and trying to steer the ship and help all three of those things be accomplished in a way where we're all growing and having a good time. Because I've seen companies where all three facets are successful on the outside, but everyone's miserable on the inside. Mm -hmm. So I think it's super interesting. How can I empower my team and lead my team to be fulfilled and successful in the job they do for that to add value to the company and to me personally, and for us to have good relationships and enjoy it. For example, did our first team offsite in Chicago about a month ago. Went to a Cubs game, played mini golf, hung out. And part of me was afraid of like, oh, if I have too much fun with these guys, like they're not going to respect me. No, it's like creating culture and leadership is about helping them accomplish their goals and supporting them through the process. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely about, about the team 
uh, not not just the leader's uh, wants and needs. Absolutely. What's a book that you think every person should read? Every entrepreneur should read. Hmm. I got four books down here. I would say these are some of four of my favorite. I got the Bible. I got Zig Ziglar, Secrets of Selling. I got Four Hour Work Week, and I got the Sedona Method. All some of my favorite books, but. I would say the number one book, which has helped me specifically with leadership too, uh, is uh, Dale Carnegie, but also with business development as well. Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's prolific for a reason, right? Yep. hundred years later. All right. If you could start over uh, 10 years ago, would you rather know everything that you know now, but you have no connections? Or would you rather have all the connections you have now, but no knowledge? Hmm. You know, it's funny because I don't really have a lot of connections right now. So my answer to that question is going to be the knowledge. And that's because I'm running a business right now that doesn't really rely so much on connections. And it's relied more on my knowledge to be successful. Although you can say, how did I get all this knowledge? Connections introduced me to the leaders and the mentors who coached me through the process. But if I could go back in time, if I had to pick either between my connections and network and what I know, I would go back, do what I know and just build the thing up 10 years ago. And yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love that. And last question, if you were to leave behind a journal entry for your future children, relatives on what they need to do to build a business and you only had 60 seconds to explain it, and everything you've learned, what would you include in that journal entry? Wow. Well, I would start with making sure that the business you pick is is something that you're very passionate about and you feel like is it in alignment with your mission and what you were called to do. Um, you know, I had Cole Gordon on my podcast and his first business failed. It was something about running ads or being an agency. And he then went back and closed for traffic and funnels. And then through that experience, realized what his gift was. So obviously there are things I would say around persistence and hard work and never giving up and learning the nuts and bolts of marketing and sales and leadership. But I think the main thing I would start with is if you're going to start a business, make sure you have a lot of passion and fulfillment and you have that natural gift and it's the thing you're supposed to do. Love that. So complete alignment between what you feel you were called to do and what you actually end up doing and and not really forcing it. Yeah, don't fo- don't try to do the business that you think there's the best financial opportunity or you can make the most money. Do the thing that you feel like you have the best innate gift around and you feel like you would enjoy working on those things. Because, you know, if you hear Steve Harvey, he's told stories around this guy he knew was a barber and everyone in his family was like, why are you going to be a barber, man? There's no money in that. And Steve Harvey's barber started cutting hair for Bill Clinton. And, you know, they'd fly him in on Air Force One. And here, oh, here's a hundred grand for the haircut. And here's this. And then Steve Harvey talked about this other guy who made chicken. His favorite thing was to cook fried chicken. And then the guy built this, you know, $20 million company. So you can make a lot of money doing pretty much anything at this point with the world and the internet and all these different niches and people who like these different things. So don't pick something, oh, I think there's more money in that. Pick the thing where you feel like you can really help and you enjoy the most. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you for, for all your insight uh, and your time here. Where can people find you and and what do you kind of have coming up over the next, you know, three to six months that you'd want people to know about? 
Yeah. Um, if you want to check out the podcast, it's called the Brendan Burns show. It's also at the Brendan Burns show on Instagram. Um, Brendan H burns.com is my website. And yeah, if you're interested in building um, or scaling a coaching or consulting business, definitely hit us up through the website. Um, and then other than that, my main focuses are personal development, travel, just booked some uh, business class flights over to London and Europe to go hang out with some friends and kind of enjoy, make sure I'm having fun. And then, like I said, at some point without taking on too much, um, getting back into an investment fund is, is kind of my next business. Love that, man. Well, thank you again uh, for your time, your insight. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to episode one of the Ask an Operator podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for watching. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ask an Operator podcast. And we will see you in a couple weeks with our next episode.